still my soul. Hey everybody, this is Phil. Welcome to our Bible study podcast. At the end of this study, please take the time to subscribe to the Glen Springs Church YouTube channel and check out our website. Also, if you live in the Gainesville, Florida area, we would love to have you visit us in person. For now, let's open up the Heavenly Library and may the words of the Holy Spirit sink deep into our hearts. Thanks for joining us. In every So we're continuing our study this morning on the uh, subject of knowing God, and we have been looking at it from two uh, perspectives. One is the uh, idea of natural revelation, that is, God has revealed himself in the world that he created, and we were addressing three questions as relates to that particular side of the story, and that is, uh, the first question was, how did we get here? The metaphysical question, how is everything here? What is this world that we're in. The second question is the one that we're on today. We spent last week on it. We're going to spend today and part of next week uh, finishing up this question, and that is, why is man different, which leads us uh, to the questions of morality and good and evil. Uh, So we're going to uh, continue today talking about that. Last week, we looked at this first part where man is different than other living creatures. That is, Man is different when you look at man as compared to other living parts of the universe, of the world. Man is clearly different. And we talked about some of those differences last week. There are the physical differences uh, we talked about uh, last week. And, but then there are the, uh, the most striking difference between man isn't the physical difference, but rather the thinking difference, the cognitive difference between man. And of course, we would look at that as Well, the Bible tells us we were created in the image of God. We were the only part of the creation created in the image of God, and that accounts for this difference that we see between man and other living creatures. Um, But what we're doing in this class, for now at least, is we're saying we're going to set that aside for a moment, and we're just going to look at what the person who lives in this world didn't grow up the way you and I grew up, weren't taught the things that you and I were taught, haven't embraced the Bible as the the answer to everything. And if they're looking at the universe, what questions come up? What, What are they pointing towards? What points them towards God and the world? And so what we're talking about right now is the fact that the uniqueness of man points us to God. The fact that we were made in God's image leads us to God. And one of the things that strikes us most about the differences between, especially if we're talking about the cognitive differences, the thinking difference, what I would refer to as the immaterial differences. So when we talked earlier about the metaphysical things, that is, you know, how did the universe get here? And we believe that if we look at the world around us, it points towards a mind, a creative mind, a, a, a God, if, if, you, if you will. But those are material things. We're looking at the material universe. And while we are part of the material universe as human beings, and we have this physical difference, what we're really talking about now are the immaterial differences between men and the other creatures. And, the, and while 
our cognitive abilities that we outlined last week, the, you know, the fact that uh, our idea, the, what we might describe as our self-awareness, our consciousness, stands out. What I'm really focusing on this week is the difference in terms of morality. Morality. You know, scientists, I think I ended with this quote last week, scientists have long since recognized that the morality of man, man's moral sense, is the thing that most distinguishes him from other animals. In his book, The Descent of Man and the Selection and Selection in Relation to Sex, Charles Darwin, name you all recognize, said this. He says, I fully subscribe to the judgment of those writers who maintain that of all the differences between man and the lower animals, the moral sense or conscience is by far the most important. So the man who uh, first proposed the theory that everything that we see around us has come here by process of evolution struggled and wrestled with this idea that man is clearly different than everything else. And it's this moral sense that is the most important of these differences. And ultimately, that is the greatest question. Where did this aspect of human beings come from? Well, we've already said, if we look at the Bible, we would say, well, God told us. He said, I created man in my image. But if we set that aside for a moment, how else do we understand it? And last week, I, I uh, looked at uh, Romans chapter 2, verses 12 uh, through 15. I'm going to read that again this morning to kind of kickstart where we are. Paul said, after talking about the immorality of man, man should have recognized God in the creation. Talks about that in chapter 1. He says, but man rejected the idea of God and went out and followed his own minds and ended up engaging in all kinds of sinful activities. He's described that in chapter 1. But here in chapter 2, Paul says in verse 12, he says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Now, of course, here he's talking about the law of Moses, right? He says, all those who perish without, who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He's already making a point here that whether you're under the law, whether you were part of the covenant law of Moses or without the law of Moses, you're still condemned with or without the law if you're sinful. He says, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience being, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Three, phrase, three, three spots here we want to focus on. He says, Gentiles who do not have the law, when, when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. Most translations you'll find there will say, by nature, by nature. The King James Version, the New International Version, the ESV, all say when the Gentiles, by nature, do the things of law. And that's where we get this idea of, one of the places we get this idea of the natural law. By natural law, referring to moral, a natural moral law. 
Because what Paul goes on to say is, not only do they do these things by nature, but they are a law unto themselves. In other words, they're not without law just because they weren't part of the covenant law of Moses. If you were to go back to chapter 1, he's talking about men who knew God through the creation. And then he describes them as having known the ordinances of God. Well, if they were not part of the covenant law of Moses, how did they know the ordinances of God? Well, they knew the ordinances of God by natural law, the law unto themselves. And he goes on, this third point is their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts accusing or else defending them. In other words, they knew what was right and what was wrong, and their conscience would either accuse or defend them. And we realize that our conscience is just simply that part of us that tells us whether or not we're doing what we know to be right. You know, guilt is, I mean, you can be, feel guilty even though your understanding of what is right and wrong may be wrong, but your conscience is telling you whether or not you're doing what you think is right or wrong. And Paul is here saying that men have a conscience that governs them, that tells them to do what is right. And when they do what is wrong, their conscience is accusing them. All right? So there's these three statements that Paul makes it clear. God made us so that we have this within us, this sense of what is right and what is wrong. Did I see a hand? Were you raising your hand? Um, Plato, and I bring this up because, you know, we, one of our foundation passages in this class is Acts chapter 17, when Paul is standing in Athens and he is speaking to uh, the, you know, uh, followers of these Greek philosophers, Plato of whom would have been one of the great. Um, Plato acknowledged something like natural moral law when he divided the law into two categories. Plato divided the law into what he called the written law and the unwritten law. The written law and the unwritten law. The written law was that which governed the commonwealth. In other words, it was the written law of the land which governed. The unwritten law was that provided, uh, the unwritten law, he says, was that which told you, quote, not to go to market naked, nor to be clothed with women's clothes. Well, he'd be shocked today, wouldn't he? Uh, that last part. Um, but in other words, Plato, these Greek philosophers who were trying to figure this all out, who were searching for God and an explanation of the universe, and who did some tremendous work in that regard. If you read it, you would have to acknowledge, wow, they, they were so close. But he, but he says, there's the written law that we all are governed by, that we, we write down and we agree upon, but then there's this unwritten law which tells you not to go to the market naked. In other words, he acknowledged there's something inside of us. Not that we wrote down and we created, you know, to govern taxes and property and civil law, but a moral sense that is inside of us. Thomas Aquinas, famous 13th century Christian philosopher uh, who wrote some tremendous things, did a lot of work and. Uh, in apologetics, uh, he wrote extensively about uh, the natural law, but I just want to give one quote. His view was, the light of reason is placed by nature and thus by God in every man to guide him 
in his acts. So he described it as, well, God gave us this sense of reason, you know, that we can, we can reason and do what is reasonable. Um, C.S. Lewis argued uh, the existence of natural law in his book, Mere Christianity. And I, I, I'm sure many of you have read that book. Um, if you haven't, you should. It's a tremendous uh, book. But he spends a lot of time, the first two or three or four chapters, he is wrestling with this idea, this argument that the existence of a moral law is evidence for God and presents this dilemma for us as men that should point us to search for the origins of it. And he makes this great argument. And he argued that the evidence of moral law was everywhere, even evident in common everyday conversations where men express their expectations of others, stating or implying some code of conduct. And he talks a lot about the idea of, you know, what someone ought to do. The fact that you're saying someone ought to do, you're acknowledging that there is a code. You know, the fact that we talk about things being unfair or cruel or mean or unjust, these ideas are indicating that we have all acknowledged that there's something we should do and something we should never do. Or when we do it, we have wronged someone. And we acknowledge this just in our everyday conversation. And those who will argue that there's no such thing as God and there's no such thing as a, a objective morality will nevertheless make these same statements. They will acknowledge in their everyday conduct that there is a right and a wrong about things. They acknowledge it. In fact, those who argue the most ardent, the most violently against such a notion are at the same time insisting that you accept their point of view, that they are right and you are wrong. They can't escape uh, this whole thing. Um, what's also interesting is C.S. Lewis talks about uh, that this used to be years ago kind of referred to as the law of nature. He says, but now we reserve that phrase, the laws of nature, to refer to things that we now understand like gravity. These other uh, constants in the universe that we talked about earlier in our class, you know, those are the laws of nature. In other words, the laws of physics, for example, that just govern everything. Math, which dictates so much in our, in our universe. Those are the you know, laws of nature. He says, men cannot escape those laws. You know, a rock is subject to the laws of nature. That is, the law of gravity. A rock is subject to it. If it's in the sky and you let go of it, it will fall. But so are men. We're subject to the laws of nature. We can't escape the laws. We cannot defy them. And somebody says, well, we can get in a rocket ship. We can fly. You're still subject to the law of gravity as you are, in some sense, defying it going up into space in a rocket. Your thrust on the rocket is based entirely on the fact that you're subject to gravity. You don't escape it. As long as you're in the gravitational pull of the earth, you're subject to gravity. The moral law is the only law in nature which men can violate. Men can violate it. And the moral law only applies to humans. We don't call a lion cruel because he chased down a gazelle violently threw it to the ground and 
tore out its neck and ate it? It's a terrible looking thing. You see that on YouTube, you just go on to the next one. You don't want to see that, right? But we don't think the lion is cruel or evil. I mean, I'm sure there are people who do think that. But those people are not right in their mind. And we all know there, there are people in the, in the world whose judgments about such things is askewed. But generally, we don't think animals are cruel because, but you know what we do think sometimes? We think that the trophy hunter who goes and shoots the lion is cruel. We might say that in certain circumstances. We apply this idea of morality only to men, only to humans. And throughout our history, mankind has acknowledged and observed this sense of morality uh, coming from inside of us. That it, 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 we've just accepted it. Our experience tells us this. You know, everything that we observe in the world, when we were talking earlier in our class, when we were talking about the universe, you know, that is all us observing facts in the universe. And, and, and that is the domain of science, right? Observing facts. You know, postulating an idea, performing an experiment to see if our idea is true, coming to some conclusions and establishing some facts, you know, observing facts. That's science. Um, we, we, we recognize that in the material world. But when we get to this thing about morality that we're talking about, as I said before, it's immaterial. Is immaterial. And what we know about it, we know best from our own experience. We don't have to just observe people. We are people. We have our own experience with which to know better than anything in the universe what is inside of man, what our thoughts are like, what we contemplate. We understand that uh, by our own experience. And so I want to suggest to you that when we're getting to these things like the subject of morality, we are leaving the domain of science in many ways. Science cannot observe morality in some of the ways that we're going to talk about it. You know? Uh, and that's one of the problems. It's one of the things that the scientific community and the naturalist community, the materialist community, that is those who uh, don't believe in God and want to explain everything with science, they don't realize that there's some things science is, is beyond, or, or beyond the ability of science to observe. Science is 100% about observing things. And that's why scientists are at a loss when they get to the Big Bang. If they acknowledge the Big Bang or believe in the Big Bang theory, there's nothing beyond the Big Bang. There's no way to observe the beginning. And so the idea of how everything got here is outside observable science. And, and that's an important thing uh, to acknowledge. Doesn't mean that science and Christian faith are at odds with one another. They're not. What Christianity is at odds with is worldviews 
that some scientists hold. And that's an important thing to remember. You will be made to believe that Christianity is anti-science, and it is not. In fact, if you just go purely on the science, as some of the quotes we've looked at already in this class, if you just go purely on what is observed, some of the most anti-God scientists end up being some sort of deist. In other words, they at some point acknowledge we can't explain this, and the only thing that really explains it is some sort of intelligence behind it. But they often end up as deists because they're trying to take a position. They're trying to take a position where they can explain this without now subjecting themselves to a God. All right, and, and that's interesting. And what's interesting, just a side note, I, I, I'm run out of time every week, so I shouldn't go on side notes, but when you read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, I don't remember when that book was written. I, I want to say the 50s, early 50s. Um, most of, uh, it was not long after World War II. Late 40s, early 50s, that book was written. And I'm telling you, you read that book, it could have been written yesterday. He recognized and, and identified the primary arguments um, that people will make against God, and he addresses them very well in that book. And the details have changed. The sets of facts that the opponents of God are using are different, but the arguments are still the same arguments. And so I really uh, commend you to read that book if you haven't. You'll have to read it two or three times. I'm just telling you ahead of time. Because the first time you'll miss half of it, or more than half. And then the next time you get a little more. And by the time you read it the third or fourth time, you're just amazed by it. So I, I suggest you do that. It will fill in some of the blanks that we're skipping. Some people will object to this idea of this moral law that we're talking about by saying, wait, it that can't be true, that God instilled in men this sense of morality. It can't be true, because when you look around the world, you see all these different things, all these different moralities from culture to culture. So it can't be true that God put in man this sense of morality. But the truth is, when you look at all the different cultures around the world and take note of their moral codes, you're struck not with the difference that exists between them, but you're struck with the similarities that exist between them. That morality across the world, across time, across many cultures, has rem been remarkably consistent. Remarkably consistent. Gerald McDermott, in his book, Everyday Glory, argues convincingly that while the major religions around the world, both current and ancient, have vastly different religious practices, and vastly different concepts of the deity, very different religions, what we find is that they have remarkable, remarkably similar moral codes. Some worship objects or nature. Some are pantheistic. Others are monotheistic. Some, some uh, even have an atheistic view of the universe as their religion. Um, and there, there are several examples of that. Um, the philosophical Hindu position is that there isn't really a personal God. 
Now, there's another form of Hindu that embraces pantheistic ideas about God. Buddhism is really at its root. There's no personal God in Buddhism. It's an atheistic view of the universe. There's just a force or a moral code that we follow, but not a personal God. So there's, there's a lot of different views, but there are these similar moral codes. Um, for example, none of the world's great moral traditions, which all of which have their roots in some religion, none of them teach that it's good to be selfish. None of them teach that it's good to lie. None of them teach that it's good to cheat or steal or murder. They all oppose these things. But yet, all of them teach that the best life is one that is devoted to whatever is ultimate, whatever their concept of the ultimate reality, the ultimate deity. They all believe that the best life is served, devoted to whatever that is, their concept of God or gods or Brahman or Tao or the teachings of Buddha or Confucius. They all accept that. And every one of them teach that it is better to live for others than for oneself. I want you to think about those two things I just said. They all teach, besides these various moral things, don't murder, don't, you know, and I'll talk about a couple of others of those in a minute. They all teach that the best life is to serve whatever is ultimate and to live for others is better than living for yourself. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to everybody? No. Yes. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, and other places where Jesus taught that same principle. That is common in all of these major religions. Here's some other things. Respect for a supreme being, do not blaspheme, care for your children, malicious murder or maiming, stealing, slander are all reprehensible, and adultery, adultery, even though there are culturally different views and applications of that, is universally uh, condemned. For example, take Muslims and Jews and Christians. Jews and Christians say you have one spouse. That's the teaching. There's one spouse. Muslims, you can have up to four wives. If you're a man, you can have up to four wives. But they all agree that marriage is sacred and the vows cannot be broken. So even though there's these differences, the core of what they're teaching, and and by the way, that idea of the sanctity of marriage runs across all these religions. Even though there may be differences, there may be allowances for concubines, but do we see that in the Old Testament? Yes. Right? So, So these are important things to note, that when we look across the world, we see a Striking consistency in moral codes. Even though over time, what Paul described in Romans chapter 1 has clearly occurred. And we're also not talking about how well people live by these things. You say, well, people don't live by it. Look at the world. People aren't living by it. We're not saying that everybody lives by the moral code. We're saying there is remarkable agreement about what ought to be whether it is or not done. And frankly, we would say that about ourselves, wouldn't we? What we ought to do is not what we do. What we ought to do is not what we do. 
Paul observed <clears throat> in Romans chapter 1 also that men can suppress the natural law. Although we know God is here because we can see him around us, and in him we live and move and have our being, chapter 17 of Acts, even though these things are true, we know that men can then still deny God and suppress the truth and pursue their own ways. That doesn't change whether or not God has instilled in us this moral law. Now I want to talk about, in the few minutes we have left, I want to talk about uh, a couple of objections. We won't get to all these uh, today. We'll, we'll finish this part up uh, early in next week's class. But the materialists, the, those uh, who are looking for purely natural explanations of everything, denying the existence of a creator, they will look at this moral law and say something like, uh, it's really been popularized, popularized rised in the last uh, uh, few decades, and that is that what we are talking about in terms of this moral sense that people have is also produced by evolution, by the development of our instincts and our, our herd instinct, all right? And, and I, would, I would acknowledge that I'm sure there's some of that. Do we have instincts? Yes, we all have instincts. We have instincts. The, you know, the instinct of self-preservation comes in many forms. Sexual desire. You can say, well, there, that's how we preserve ourselves. That's how we reproduce is we have this strong sexual desire that pushes us to engage in intercourse, which produces you know, future generations of humans, right? That's a natural instinct. The instinct for hunger, which drives us to, you know, crave food and to hunt and kill and, and you know, thirst, you know, that your body just naturally makes you thirsty. And I'm diabetic, so I, I can tell you so many physiological things about thirst, you know. My sugar's high, I'm really thirsty. Why? Because it's one way for me to expel sugar is to drink lots of water and go to the bathroom frequently. You know, if I have something up my nose, I'm going to sneeze, and it's going to come out. If I have something in my eye, my eyes will water. All these things happen. There's certainly, you know, not only natural laws that govern those types of things, but we have these instincts that drive us to do it. But there are some problems with saying that the herd instinct explains moral law. Um, for example, an illustration, I'll paraphrase, paraphrase an illustration C.S. Lewis uses. He says, um, you hear the cry for help from a man who is in danger. And suddenly you feel two instincts. One is the instinct to help. What might the other instinct be? To run. Whatever has him might get me. So there's two instincts. Which do I follow? Which one do I follow? And we will often find, you know, I have, you have a sexual instinct. But what the moral law calls upon you to do is to curb that instinct. In other words, you're, you're not called upon to just live by every instinct at every moment to its fullest. 
In fact, we've already said that one of the most common moral codes throughout the world's uh, uh, cultures is the idea of unselfishness. But there are a few greater instincts than self-preservation. Yet selfishness often calls upon us to be doing the opposite of that. And so my moral instincts might call upon me to help the man crying out in danger, even though the greater instinct in me is self-preservation and to get away from that. But the moral code in me says, go help, even though it may not be good for you. And there are many more examples. That's a simple, simple example. But there are many more examples of this where the uh, idea of herd instinct cannot explain what we know from our own experience about the morality that is embedded in us, that is part of who we are as human beings. So when we look at the moral code, as we, we try to look and understand, what we have to ask ourselves is, where did that come from? Why are we different than the apes and the Labrador retrievers? Why are we different from them? Why do we have this? Besides our higher levels of thinking, cognitive abilities, and you know, the other things that we describe, why, do we, why are we constantly pushed by what we think is right or wrong? Why are we constantly feeling the urges of our conscience? Why? Where does that come from? Why does that exist? It's not explained by the material things. It is explained by something that is immaterial. And just like we walk outside on a clear night away from the city lights and we look up like the shepherd David did and we say, wow, look at all of this. And we're pushed to say, who did this? How is all this here? And millions and millions and billions of other ways that we can look at the universe and come to that same conclusion, what I'm suggesting is, is the moral question causes us to ask the same question, the moral problem. Now, we, we come to, and this is where we'll pick up next week. We're about to be out of time here. I'm actually going to try to end at the end. The Lord is in His holy temple. Again, thanks for listening. If you live in North Central Florida or you're just passing through, we would love to have you visit us at the Glen Springs Road Church of Christ. Also, check out our website, glenspringschurch.com. You can learn more about our church family and how to contact us. Until next time, God bless. Keep silence before